0: Hi, I'm Marietta Delvecchio and welcome to another episode of the Silver Bullet Podcast. This podcast is about lessons learned in running a business with a strong focus on startup founders and CEOs. We'll uncover what gaps these disruptors have identified in the market, what they're doing differently to their competitors, and of course, to find out their silver bullet for business success. On today's episode of the Silver Bullet Podcast, I'm chatting with Con Kittos, the Executive Chairman of Ashuria, a government-assisted employment agency working with both employers and governments to find job seekers' long-term employment. During the podcast, we chat about his mission to help Indigenous communities thrive, why the biggest challenge for businesses is less about what they do and more about what they don't do, and why empowering his staff is his key to business success. Con, thank you for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. So as I mentioned in the intro, Asuria is an employment agency, but it's unlike a typical employment agency. Tell us a bit more about why Asuria is unique.
1: Well, Asuria is in the business of helping governments place unemployed people into work, helping governments uh, assist uh, citizens to create their own new businesses, and working with governments to improve community opportunities for development and growth. So We're somewhat different, whereas a traditional employment agency would focus on serving employers and finding them the best possible candidates. We work on serving government, employers and candidates to come together.
0: And so just to clarify, that's not necessarily finding people roles within government. You're working with those government agencies that are helping the unemployed job seekers, so somebody who perhaps is on job seeker specifically um, or receiving the dole and they need assistance to find employment. Would that be right?
1: Correct. Governments around the world invest time, energy and resources to help the unemployed move from unemployment to employment and increasingly governments around the world are turning to providers like Ashoria to assist them to do that. So, yeah, you're spot on, Marietta. Our work is all about helping the unemployed move into employment and coming off social security payments.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's a really challenging industry, and I'd love to dive deep, a little bit deeper into that in a, in a moment. But tell us a bit about the process from first touch, let's say, to employment for somebody who comes in and says, I need your help.
1: First up is all about getting to know the job seeker, understanding their background, their interests their strengths, uh, any challenges they might have in re-entering the workforce, so that we can then build a customized program to suit their particular needs. See, there's no really one cookie cutter approach to human services. Everyone that presents themselves to us has a unique set of circumstances, opportunities and issues to deal with. So our programs are all about getting to know the individual, getting to know them as deeply as we possibly can so that we can then arrange a set of services, interventions, supports, education and training, work experience and other initiatives to help them uh, get into work sooner rather than later. So it's a unique journey for every single uh, participant we work with.
0: In a typical employment journey, um, a a recruiter might look at a person's, Experience and then place them in a role where the employer has stated that they want that experience. But do your the people you're trying to find work for they have sort of probably more complex backgrounds and more more challenging um, stories and and it wouldn't be I imagine quite so straightforward. Can you give us a little bit of insight into some of those differences and challenges?
1: Sure. Um, It's an interesting uh, question, Uh, and uh, it really, I'll I'll start by saying it really depends on the economic environment where we're in, because when we have environments that have relatively high unemployment, um, there are more and more people then on the market looking for work that have experience, skills, qualifications, and have and are very close to the workforce. That is, they've got very few barriers to enter work. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there'll be periods when we have really low unemployment, like we do today. And those people that are closest to the workforce have got have all are, are already in work. And those that are left, uh, what we, uh, those that are left often have more barriers to enter the workforce or are, further or are further away from the workforce. So depending upon where we are in the economic cycle, we might have uh, 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 many job seekers that are close to the workforce and or many job seekers that are further away. So right now, uh, not only just in Australia, uh, but globally, uh, there are economies with record low unemployment levels. So those that have been able to find work have easily gotten that work because of low unemployment. So those that we're working with today here in Australia and other parts of the world are those that are furthest away from the workforce. So the key there to assisting these people is to uh, work on two elements. Um, One is ensuring that their skills, competencies, qualifications are such that they're closely matched to what it is employers are looking for, or to work with employers and in industry to find jobs that are suitable for them in their current uh, with their current level of experience, skills, or qualifications. So um, we can spend a lot of time unpacking uh, how we do those things, and I'm happy to do that with you, but I thought it's important to focus at the top level first, and then we can start to drill down with you.
0: Sure. You may have already answered this, but I'd just give you another opportunity if there's anything else you wanted to share. How is Asuria different from other employment service providers?
1: Sure. Great question as well, Marietta. I think the biggest differences between us and other organisations is that we utilise some of the most up-to-date principles from cognitive and behavioural science. We work with leading universities and academics around the world to better understand uh, uh, our job seekers so we can build the right solutions for them. We use best of breed technology, um, and that technology includes tools and resources that allow job seekers to understand their strengths and capabilities, uh, tools and techniques to help employers match their requirements to the right job seeker. Innovation is ingrained in everything we do. Um, Our out of the box thinking is about how do we deliver, how do we design, how do we create an individual journey that's just right for each and every person that we serve rather than that cookie cutter approach. And finally, we take a strengths-based approach to job seekers employment. We believe everyone has significant strengths and capabilities uh, to assist employers and in industry. So we look to understand those strengths of an individual and uh, leverage those strengths so that they're able to, to uh, get that job or, or keep that job or get a new job.
0: Can you hit us with some stats? How many job seekers would you say you help place into roles per year?
1: Oh, over 10,000 uh, a year in the last year, and that number's growing as we expand into more and more countries around the world. Recently, we opened uh, our doors in Sweden, and today we serve thousands of job seekers in Sweden. We have an emerging business in the Middle East that's helping more and more people in that part of the world. And our joint ventures in other parts of the world are helping tens of thousands of job seekers move from unemployment into employment. We also help thousands of uh, people in remote communities across Australia in our joint venture partnerships with Indigenous organisations in which Asuri is a minority shareholder. We empower through our minority shareholding local Indigenous organisations to serve their own people and communities. And through those programs, we serve thousands of of more citizens uh, right across remote Australia.
0: That's really fascinating. It's not an area that a lot of people operate in. Were you always working in those remote communities or has that been a a new venture and what made you decide to try and tackle that space? Uh,
1: The remote community and the First Nations space is something that's really close to my heart. I've had 20 years in working in this industry and of course we all know the the gap between economic opportunities, health opportunities, job opportunities, uh, well-being is between white Australia and Indigenous Australians is, is not closing. Um, and I've been on a personal mission to make as much of a contribution to closing the gap as I possibly can. And the thing that stood out for me um, as I've looked at this space for many, many years is that um, there are a lot of white fellas like me uh, running businesses trying to serve Indigenous people in their communities, uh, flying in and flying out to do that, um, uh, bringing in expertise from outside the community into the community, deliver a service for a couple of weeks or months and then fly back out. I don't think that's been the answer. So I'm working on changing the paradigm. And I believe the paradigm, shifting the paradigm from organizations like mine that have been traditionally delivering these services in a fly-in, fly-out nature, I'm shifting the paradigm to uh, investing in locally owned indigenous organizations and giving them the resources, the financial capability, uh, the investment, so that they can go on and deliver more localized solutions from a local provider in their communities and where we're seeing as a result of these investments into indigenous uh, organizations uh, i'm seeing capacity development now so i'm seeing that my investment is ge- building capacity in these organizations to create their own localized solutions and uh, i plan to over the coming years as these organizations become stronger to start uh, dialing down uh, my ownership or my minority ownership of those organizations and, in essence, uh, walking away once the organization is up and running and capable of of standing on their own. I'm really proud of that work. I think that work's going to be life-changing for Indigenous people in Indigenous communities because, for the first time ever, I'm seeing now these organizations have enough resource and capacity to deliver services to their own people. That really excites me. And I know I'm probably doing myself out of a job, and I'm probably doing my uh, the industry, uh, the white feller owned industry, out of work in these places. But I think that's great. I think if I can make myself redundant in those places, then that's a sign of success because those communities are now taking ownership, Uh, they're they're reinvesting the fees they get from government in their own communities. They're building that capacity, not just organisational capacity, but management and leadership capacity, back office services capacity. I think that's a game changer and I'm on a mission to change the game in those communities.
0: It'll mean that your job's done, won't it? Correct.
1: Correct. (laughs) Correct.
0: Some people say that recruitment and, you know, personnel retention and that sort of employment space is one of the hardest elements about running a business. But you've made it your business. That is your business. And that's the space you've operated in in a long time. What do you like most about it? And what's what's the most challenging?
1: Well, I like most about watching people grow, individuals grow through employment. I love, I just love watching people uh, uh, progress their careers, I i love people uh, when they're uh, sorry i love watching people uh, just do that uh, expand and explore their full potential um, but you know it's uh, dealing with people is always tough um, and we each come with our own sets of challenges and and beliefs and uh, approaches to life and uh, trying to keep everybody happy all the time is 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 a tough gig isn't it So I've learned over time that or the biggest challenge is that it's really hard to keep everyone happy all the time and that it's pretty important to build cultures and environments that allow people to flourish and grow. And if that means that the place is not right for them because it's not the right environment to grow and flourish, then they need the power and freedom and flexibility to find the right place to do just that. So. That's been my biggest lesson. My biggest lesson, my biggest learning has been create environments that allow people to grow. And if that means they need to find another place to grow, then they should feel comfortable and confident in doing that. And the organization should be comfortable and confident in allowing them to do just that.
0: I love that. Um... Tell us a little bit about your background. You've done a mixture of roles, but you've spent a lot of time in the employment services sector. As you said, twenty years or so. What initially sparked your interest?
1: Well, I I came from the IT industry back in the early eighties. I'm a qualified. I qualified as an accountant in 1981, and then I was so I really did well in my studies as an accountant, but. I couldn't handle my first job. They sat me at a desk doing paperwork, and that really wasn't me. So I was was, right in the days before the PC, I was playing around with uh, building my own PCs before the IBM PC or the Apple PC was released. And I got really excited about that tech, and in 1982, I decided to knock on the door of IBM. Hewlett Packard and some other computer companies. And I pitched myself to them and said, I think I can sell this technology. I think I'd be really great at selling accounting systems on. And before PCs, we were selling accounting systems on mini and mainframe computers. So I landed myself a job in the IT industry and I spent 20 years of my, or 15 years of my career working in the IT industry. Um, um. And during that time, I I worked for a great Aussie company called the Computer Power Group. And in the Computer Power Group, uh, they had a division that were teaching programmers how to program. And it was the first global uh, business, it was the first business that used e-learning back in the early 90s. And e-learning was delivered then off this big mainframe computer to computer power graduates around the country. and I was responsible for running part of that division. So that was my first insights into like education and training and the merger of technology with education and training. So I, uh, that sparked an interest in that education training space. And from there, I segue into education companies, running education companies. And then uh, when the Keating uh, government and a bit later on, uh, the the government that replaced Keating privatised the employment services market. Uh, I entered that space with my previous employer, um, the Angus Knight Group. So I sort of segued from uh, edu- uh, IT education and training using IT into education, training, and jobs. And uh, with Angus Knight, I joined them in. 1998. And over the next 11, 12 years, we became Australia's largest privately owned provider of employment services to government in this space. And I left there in 2011, um, sort of took a couple of jobs on boards as non-executive directors, as a non-executive director. And I landed myself on the board of this company, which back in 2000, and uh, 7 to 16 or so, when I joined this company as a non-executive director, it was known as People Plus. I joined the board as, a, not as I said, a non-executive director and later chairman. And uh, it was owned by UK interests. And the UK company at that point wanted to exit this market. And uh, that presented an opportunity for me to invest in and buy the company from them. So I bought the company from them in 2016, 17. And have been on a journey now, uh, turning this into a global organisation, helping more job seekers right around the world.
0: Tell me a little bit about um, when you joined, um, and, and you know when it was People Plus and were executive chairman, because you you turned you sort of turned the business around, didn't you? It wasn't profitable, and now it's extremely profitable and has landed. What Is it half a billion dollars of government contracts in the last year?
1: Yeah, correct. Um, A bit over a year ago, we were awarded over half a billion dollars of contracts with the Commonwealth government, and we're delivering those contracts now. Um, Interestingly, this company uh, had never made a profit. Um, They'd been in Australia for over uh, eight years, nine years, and had never made a profit. In fact, had lost over 35 million Australian dollars. In uh, uh, being this UK company trying to operate in Australia, in fact, they interviewed me for the CEO job after I left Angus Knight, and I failed the interview. They didn't hire me as CEO. Um, That's uh, interesting. The, very I think, interesting. i are going to
0: need to come back to that. We're going to come sure, back to
1: that. Sure. Sure. They didn't hire me. I, I, I didn't succeed in interview. Um, and then a year later, they called me and asked me to come on the board as a non-executive director. At that stage, they had an acting CEO. They still didn't want to hire me as CEO. They were still losing money. Um, and uh, 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 so I did take the board role because I built up a little portfolio of board roles. And uh, it was enjoyable to do that. And um, it was from there when the UK interest decided to sell, I knew I could fix this business. I just knew it in my bones. I knew the industry. I could see from the board what it what was working, what wasn't working. So um, I backed myself and bought the business. And the first thing we did was um, reduce all the loss-making activities. It was in a number of businesses uh, or or divisions that were losing money, like it had a labour hire business that was losing money and had some other small contracts that were losing money. So the first thing I did was um, uh, exit those loss-making businesses. And I took I halved the revenue of the business and stopped losing money. And then, once I halved the revenue of the business and stopped losing money, the management team and I uh, built a new strategy for a different future and reinvented this group to become what is now a global, one of the global leaders in the space. So, we uh, from when I joined the organisation, we were losing money at about 30 million annually of revenue. Uh, we reduced revenue to about 15, made it break even by 2019-20. By and since then, we've had a compound annual growth rate of greater than 30% of revenue a year and are highly profitable. And we're on target to generate revenues of over $100 million a year uh, this year and uh, continue that 30% plus compound annual growth rate.
0: Just f- very quickly for anybody who might not understand the company accounting around how reducing revenue actually improved your profitability, mm-hmm. can you explain that a little bit? Is is that because you reducing revenue also reduced costs?
1: Yeah, well, we were the business was uh, driving revenue and revenue growth without regard to profitability. So it had some products that were highly profitable and services. It had a whole lot of other services that were losing money. So every dollar of sale amounted to losing more money. So, in a turnaround, um, I think one of the first things you've got to do is remove those loss-making activities. If you can't fix them, you've got to remove them. It's like a bit like a cancer. You've got if you can't fix the cancer, you've got to cut it out. Um, and that's what we did. We weren't confident we could fix the challenges in labor hire. Labor hire business at that state, that time was a very low margin business. No matter what we did, we were going to lose money in that space for a long time. And if we were going to be successful in turning around the business, we had to cut that revenue. The minute we cut that revenue, we stopped losing money. Right? So then we could have a foundation to build on from that point. So, you know, a lot of businesses I've seen chase their tail in trying to take a loss maker and and turn it into profits when it's near on impossible to do and end up down this vortex of continually losing money until they go broke or give up. I say, if you're, if the, I've got a saying in business and that is, it's, it's easy to choose what to do. There are so many things a business can do and people rush into doing things in businesses. I say the challenge to a successful business is choosing what not to do.
0: That sounds wise. Yeah. I feel like that that statement leads perfectly into our final question, Con. What's your silver bullet for business success?
1: Uh, culture. Culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast any day.
0: Oh, I love that saying. That. That's, not <laughs> that's, my,
1: <laughs> that's not my saying. I, uh, that's not my saying, but it's true. People might disagree with my definition of culture, but let me, uh, I I struggle to find a single definition of culture anywhere in this this space. Um, uh, But let me give you my sense of culture. Culture in an organization is uh, all about how we deal with each, how we treat each other in the business, how we go about working on problems together, how we go about working together generally. And the culture of an organization sets the tone of the business and how it presents itself to the market. It sets a tone of how we deal with each other in the business. I say great cultures in a business empower people to make decisions. And that I've been all about, my entire career has been all about reducing the temptation to centralize decision-making. And to push as much decision-making as possible, as close to the customer as possible. Move as much decision-making from a central head office to the front line. That, that's part of culture. Um, part of culture is also, for me, uh, challenging the status quo. Empowering people in the business, no matter who you are in the business, to challenge the status quo. To Don't accept mediocrity just because a manager or a senior manager suggests you should do that. Um, To have the courage, a culture to have the courage, uh, to give people the courage to challenge management. That's a, for many Australian organizations and leaders, that's a philosophy that's hard to cop. What do you mean you're empowering your staff to challenge your managers? Doesn't that bring anarchy? Doesn't it? No, I say it doesn't. It might bring some anarchy, yes, but boy, um, I say the answers to many business challenges lay in the heads of our frontline staff, particularly for businesses that have a service where what we sell is between the ears of our staff members. If you've got a business that has products on a shelf, well, that's a very different sort of business to a business that sells a service where the service is based on the knowledge, skill and capability between the ears of your staff. I I say a business needs to empower those staff to do the best job possible. and That includes challenging the status quo. I think giving people an environment where it's safe. Uh, too many organizations have managers and leaders that um, are not open-minded, that that don't allow a fostering of ideas. Let me give you an example. I know too many businesses, I know too many managers that love the saying of what goes on in our division stays in our division. Don't you, you know, you've heard managers talk about never take your problem outside of me. If you've got a problem, come to me. Don't you dare take it to my boss. And I believe those sorts of attitudes in this this environment just limit company potential. I surely believe, and we have now over 800 staff. All the staff know my phone number. All the staff can access me. All the staff in the business have their manager's numbers and are empowered to talk to anyone in the business whenever they need to. So, if there's a problem to be solved, let's say a staff member has a problem, well, sure, go to your manager to solve that problem. But if your manager can't solve it, go to someone else who can. And a manager in the right sort of culture shouldn't be offended by that, shouldn't be upset about that. Um, So there's some glimpses for you into what I think creates a powerful culture and why I think culture would beat strategy for breakfast any day because these sorts of powerful cultures can just spin on a dime really, really quickly because their staff are empowered and their staff can challenge the status quo. And staff are part of a bigger mission and vision because they can talk to anyone in the organisation that can help them solve a problem or a challenge.
0: Well, Con, I think you're bang on and I think there's a number of companies and industries out there who have high, high turnover and they could most certainly take a leaf out of your book. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: You're welcome, Marietta. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.